Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, Gino McDermott. Gino founded the production company Blackfin about five years ago, based in New York. And when his company was bought by E1 this past fall, he became the president of alternative programming at E1 and moved out here to the West Coast. I was really excited to talk to Gino because I'm a huge fan of the documentary he produced and directed for Netflix called The Killer Inside, The Mind of Aaron Hernandez. The story of how this came to be is really interesting, and it honestly proves that determination and, of course, timing is everything. We get into a lot of complicated themes along the way, and spoiler alert, we do talk about a lot of things that happen across the series. So if you haven't seen it, you should run. Do not walk to check it out. It's that good. And someone who's not really that interested in football, frankly, I can tell you this series is about so much more than football, and it proves that ultimately a good story is a good story when it's told in a compelling way. I'm here at Gina McDermott's offices where he reigns supreme as ruler of E1 in Thank you. a very short amount of time. As I look at your bio, I'm kind of amazed. I'm excited to hear how this all happened, but let's start with yeah, how thanks I reached, for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Yeah. So I reached out to, you know, what I always do when I want to get someone on is I, I go on Facebook and I see who we have in common. It's very, very, uh, you know, sophisticated, <laughs> sophisticated connecting. You're a sleuth. I'm a sleuth, right? Yeah. So we, we had a lot of friends in common and Elliot's a very good friend of mine, Elliot Goldberg. So I reached out and I said, like, this documentary is amazing. I need to talk to this director. So he made the connection and thankfully we made it happen. I know you're super busy. Um, so, and Elliot says hi. Okay, great. Yeah, I love Elliot. He's the best. <laughs> he is. He's a really yep. good friend. He's great. His we, I've said this before in the podcast, but his daughter ended up becoming my daughter's nanny. Oh, wow. So we've become like good family friends. Okay, too. Yeah, he's, he's been a mentor of mine throughout my entire career. So he's a great guy. That's amazing. Yep. Yeah. So I was really grateful he introduced us. I was really blown away by the series. I know you've done other things in your career, but this is obviously huge right now. I mean, it's the, the sort of water cooler buzz on it is not dying down at all. It's dropped a few weeks ago on Netflix. Um, and it, it, you know, I keep reading more and listening to more stuff and it's just, it's endlessly fascinating. And I'm guessing based on how long it took you to bring to the screen that it was endlessly fascinating for you too. So I guess that's where I want to start. Like what drew you to this story? Yeah. I think, um, when I, when it came to me in 2017, January, um, I had been connected to, to, uh, writers, uh, through WME, who were my agents. And basically it was a couple of months before uh, the second trial of Aaron Hernandez. And I had been making a lot of true crime at the time, and I still do. And what fascinated me about this story was it seemed like everyone had forgotten about Aaron Hernandez. The first trial was like this big deal. And there was, you know, it was, it was worldwide news. But then when he was convicted, it seemed like everyone just wrote him off as he was going to be convicted again. So I think that, you know, that's what drew me to this story. That's what brought me in and, and had me say, you know what, I need to do something here. And we just started documenting. And then so many unforeseen things happened, like Aaron being acquitted um, in the second trial. And then, and then um, him going a couple of days later to take his own life. And it just keeps getting, and then the allegations uh, or the, um, you know, people talking about a sexuality and it just, it just kept, and it, we didn't see any of that coming. It was just like, it just happened. And we, we just knew that this was a story that needed to be told. And we, we started just a little bit earlier than everybody else. 
Right. And so there was a podcast that um, Gladiator that, but that came after you guys had started. Yeah. So doing, the, so yeah. the, the, um, the, the Gladiator podcast actually came out about a month before my film premiered at Doc NYC. Okay. So we had, so we, we spent about a year and a half to two years making the film. And then we finally got it in the Doc NYC and we we're rushing to finish it. And then that's when Gladiator came out. And I think, you know, the buzz that that created and the new information, like they had stuff that we didn't even have in our film because we were, you know, again, I self, I self financed the film and running a small production company in New York, you're really on, you're on edge all the time because you're trying to keep everyone employed. You're trying to not, you know, default on your rent. You're trying to keep things going. And it got to a point where it was like, we, we had to finish the film. We had to finish the project. So we finished it and we got into doc NYC, which wasn't easy by the way. Right. So yeah. let's back up yeah. a little. Cause yeah. I think I read a little bit about this. Yeah. It's, it's a great story because, you know, even now I've been in this business a long time and you know, I, I'm constantly, you know, we're all hustlers, right? we're always like, how is, can this be so good? And yet like no one's biting, I don't get it. So that was kind of the story here, which is that you started this um, self-financing to make a doc, not necessarily a series. And, uh, and you submitted it to, you, you made what, a 90 minute doc or something close to that? Yeah. So, so I would say that at first I, at first I was just filming whatever I could. And then when Aaron had taken his own life and I felt like the industry would suddenly wake up and people would be like, we need to do like, everyone's like, Oh, I have a Aaron Hernandez pitch. Right. At that point I had put out a, a press release saying that Blackfin has been, you know, myself and Blackfin have been putting, you know, been filming this because I want everyone to know. Yeah, what we're smart. Doing. And right then and there, we just, it, within a couple of weeks after Aaron took his own life, we put our kind of pitch together and we went out wide with it. Like we went. Did to, you ever read like a sizzle we had, reel? We had a tra yeah, we had a trailer. We had a full treatment, everything. We took it to every single buyer and, um, you know, we didn't get any. We, Why? We didn't what get, was yeah, the feedback? I think. I think the, I think it was too fresh. It was like, I think everyone saw it as a doc project, but they were like, this is too quick. It's like too close to what just happened. And I think when they realized that we, we had only been at it for like five or six months at that point, you know, it was kind of like, well, let's see how this develops some more. We did get one offer, um, but it was a development offer and it was far less then I had already invested into the film <laughs> right. and, and I didn't want to take that and then have the film, have the film be developed for a year. And then who knows what would have happened after that. So, Smart. so it was, so it was at that point, summer of 2017. Um, it was at that point where I was like, we're making a film and we just started filming more and more and investing, investing. And then we finally made like a two hour cut of like a film and we were submitting that to festivals. We submitted to like, I think 12 festivals. And I didn't know at the time, but you're supposed to have your film at like the 90 minute range because like not too many people will watch the whole film when you're submitting it. Yeah. And they don't even watch the first three minutes. I mean, exactly, that's yeah. what I figured out too. Yes, yeah, yes. It's, it's a whole racket. Yes, yeah. it is. So, so and two I, hours already probably eliminated it. From yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, so I didn't know the racket. And um, so we finally got to cut down the 90 minutes and then recirculated it again. And I had, I had forgot that um, how many submissions I had left. And I woke up one morning and 
to a to a, an acceptance from Doc NYC saying that they had a small, they started a small bucket called Jock Docs, and that we we were accepted into it as our film and like two other films, and then right when that happened, and it got into Doc NYC is when the Gladiator podcast came out. And it kind of reinvigorated everyone to like want to hear more about this story. Yeah, it's so interesting how certain things just become all of a sudden in the zeitgeist. You yeah. know, like the nobody cares and then everybody cares. So Netflix discovers it at, Do- at Doc NYC? So Netflix had saw it as a pitch and they passed on it. Yeah. Um, just like everyone else. And then they had saw it at Doc NYC. Um, and I think it was at that time and with the Gladiator podcast coming out and just kind of this story you know, becoming like, you know, it felt like there had enough time had passed to say, okay, we can do this. Um, you know, Netflix basically decided to acquire the film and then they introduced me to Angus Wall who runs Rock, Paper, Scissors, now known as Make, Make Entertainment. And Angus is this Oscar award-winning editor and executive producer. And, um, you know, they partnered us up to take it from film to series. Interesting. Yeah. So what was the, what was their motivation there? It was someone that they trusted that they worked with and they, I mean, I, well, Angus has been a part of like Icarus and oh wow, the, the okay. 13, I think it's the third. Yeah. The, like, like a ton of their recent film projects over the past couple of years. So it's like, it was just, you know, he, he's a genius in his own right. And he's a great guy to work with really nice guy. And he just, he's able to, to get in there and, and, you know, with fresh eyes, take, basically, you know, a palette with fresh paint and just start over and help, you know, elevate it to this three part series. Yeah. And then how, how much did you have to shoot? Like how much was fresh interviews? How much did you have all the prison recordings in the original doc? Like what was new? What was old? Yes. So, so the prison recordings weren't available to us when we made the film. And then what happens with, with these types of recordings is like, as more time passes, the, the legal system cares less and less about what's out in the public. So the closer it is to the trial, it's harder to get stuff. So we could never really get it. And then kind of when we were finishing up the film and like, it was a real mad dash to get the film like color corrected and online and everything for like right around that time, we realized that the, that the recordings were available. So we couldn't use them because it just. It's too late. I mean, you have to reshape though as you did probably. So, so as we started talking with Netflix and Angus about moving this thing forward, I was able to say, and by the way, we just got hundreds of phone calls in, like here they are. And I, you know, it was part of me kind of continuing to sell everyone that this is something we should do. It's, you know, listen to these calls. Um, we also shot a bunch more interviews as well um, because again, more time had passed and we wanted to continue to have more voices, you know, in the doc series. It's so funny because I can't imagine this series without those phone calls, without those recordings. Yeah. It's, to the it, heart and the spine of the film. Those, well, those phone calls, what they do is, is they humanize um, Aaron. Like you hear his voice and you hear the way he talks to his friends and his family. And like that gives you a whole different perspective because then you start to hear, you start to decide like who Aaron was as a person based off of his phone calls. Right. And, and the interesting part of that is that he's, I think he's very different in depending on who he's interacting with. So that was even more complicated. Like he, the whole thing is so complicated. That's the best word I, I could use. Like I was thinking, you know, at the end of the three hours, 
you have as many questions as you had before. And I think that's a testament to how well you did the film. I think if everything is wrapped up in a neat bow, then you don't have, it doesn't stay with you. Yeah. And I think, I think that's why the world, you know, is so fascinated by the Aaron Hernandez story is because you can't really put your finger on one thing. And what we try to do as filmmakers is put forward all these facts and put forward all these discussions to have. And then it's up to the viewer to decide what they think is the reason why, um, instead of us trying to impose that, you know, on the viewer. Right. And that's, what's so interesting sort of in the true crime genre is that it's not a whodunit, it's a why done it, you know, and it, that, that elevates it, I think to another, just a deeper level of complexity. And I think you did an amazing job of kind of, so I actually wrote out like all the themes that I thought, recovered. Oh, I like so, this. This is first time playing this game. Yeah. Like so it. here are the themes as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Murder, football, sexuality, abuse, mental, physical, and sexual drugs, CTE and toxic masculinity. Yeah. Yeah. Did I miss it. anything? <laughs> um, just, yeah, I guess wait, say there's one more time. Just so murder, obviously football yeah. slash, you know, sports Americana, I guess yep. you could put it, um, sexuality, abuse. And then in that category, I have mental, physical, and sexual drugs and CTE, which I know is part of football, yeah. but it's kind of its own theme on its own. Yeah. The other one that is and toxic masculinity. Yeah, so I yeah, want to get that one in there. Okay. Yeah. The <laughs> other one is, um, entitlement of athletes, which I think is kind of several parts of those. Yes. Agree. And, and that is the reason why that one is important is because, you know, Aaron had gotten away. It seemed like he had gotten away with a lot just because of his status and everyone wants to talk about or wants to ask questions about, why was the Odin Lloyd murder so sloppy? And my my answer to that is is because it could be. It he had no reason to think that he would be, you know, caught with that murder because he had gotten away with everything else. So why would he need to delete his home video camera footage? Why would he need to make sure there was nothing in the car that he rented? Like, you know, so um yeah, it was kind of amazing. I mean, I didn't know a lot about this going in. I knew the broad strokes, but seeing the evidence was alarming because usually you know you're used to these twisty turny stories where it takes forever to figure things out and this is pretty clear cut yeah at no, least this case the second case was definitely a little more complicated yeah i think again i think that's because it could it could be like he he had gotten away with so much before that he didn't really have to approach it like a very like smart killer for lack of a better you know description did he ever deny it um, I think he did. I mean, he did deny it because he pled not guilty. I know, so, but, um, yeah. but I, I, I know. Sorry, I meant yeah. to, to delineate the questions. I know he pled not guilty. Did he ever tell any? Because what was so interesting to me and all the prison calls is he never said, hey, there, yeah, you know, I'm wrongly accused. This, I didn't do this. And I didn't know if you had that stuff and didn't include it or no, he just never said it. You no, know, he says it a lot. He, he does. Yeah, okay. that's, that's in those calls where you know, saying things like, doesn't matter anyway, because I didn't do anything and I'll be out, you know, that type okay. of Okay, maybe it was more thing. subtle, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just was struck by sort of, you know, when someone's truly innocent, they are constantly pleading their case and it just felt like he was talking about a lot of other stuff. Yeah, I don't I don't know if we, we put all those in the doc series, but they did exist because I do remember hearing that a lot, you know. So let's talk about some of his, I want to talk about the themes and I want to talk about his relationships because I think they're all intertwined. Let's talk first about his relationship with Shayana. Is that my pronouncing yep, right? Shayana, yep. Yeah. So I'm assuming you reached out to her. Yep. So what was that? It was just a no? Yeah, was it was there just any a, conversation? Yeah, it was just a, it was a no. Um, we, 
we frankly reached out to everyone yeah. over the course of a couple of years, like hundreds and hundreds of people. And, you know, the way that you approach that is you ask once and then we, you know, we ask again and we ask again. And then on the third time, we just, you know, we just kind of part ways with it. Um, right. And because people do change their minds. So we asked, we asked her and she, you know, wasn't interested. So what's so interesting, she's, you know, I found her really fascinating because for people who don't know or, or haven't watched the series yet, um, her sister's boyfriend is the one who's murdered, who Aaron murders. And when she's questioned about it in court, she says, oh, we're not really that close, you know, and then they should have video literally like um, the Nest video or whatever of the two of them embracing for 10 minutes after she finds out the news. And they clearly were close, but she never ever betrayed Aaron till this day. And she stood by him every step of the way. And they weren't technically married. I think, right. They were, they were, yeah, engaged. I think they were just engaged. Yeah. yeah. And they had a baby, a really adorable baby together. But I was so struck by, I'm just so close with my sister. And if I knew that my fiance murdered somebody, I just can't imagine a world where I'm sticking with him and not my own sister. Yeah. So what, what did you make of her? Well, it's, it's hard for, it's hard for me to comment on that just because we didn't interview her. So, and I never got to meet her, but so everything that I, everything, my opinions based off of her being on the stand and, um, and what she said on the stand. And, um, you know, that's, that's a hard way to judge anybody because she's in a courtroom in front of a judge in front of, you know, so. Well, yeah, also do, the prison calls. I mean, you have that. Yeah. Yeah. We have that as well. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, you know, it's hard for me to give like a direct opinion about her and who, who she is because I never actually got to m meet her, you know. What do you make of their relation? What did you make of their relationship? I think that, you know, I think at least standing from afar, I think that they, they were in love. I mean, they had a baby, they had a baby together. Um, you know, she did like st stand by him until this day, like you said. So you don't do that for someone unless you, you know, you care about them. So, um, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of all I all I can really perceive about their relationship. So in terms of the relationship, so I really found the most fascinating thing, his childhood and his parents. And, you know, I, I, I think I, I did do a little deep diving on the, the dad and, um, you know, that whole thing was really interesting because I think that in the doc, you go into kind of how he was the king and he was a disciplinarian and he was a tough guy, but Aaron also idolized him and he kept him in line so that when he died, you know, that was a switch that turned off for Aaron, you know, but the more digging I did about it, you know, the dad was extremely abusive, um, you know, physically, mentally, and uh, to the mother, you know, and, and you can say what you want about the mom and her mothering of, of Aaron and his brother, but... I mean, he knocked her against the sink till she went unconscious. I mean, mm. I think it seems like Aaron's relationship with him is so was so complicated because the fact that his death had such a huge impact on him. I'm just curious what you're, especially as a guy, you know, mm. and, and kind of like, I do use that term toxic masculinity because I think there was very much like you're the man of the family and no, you can't be a cheerleader and you got to be a tough guy and you know, Aaron ends up later getting all these tattoos. Like, I just think there's a lot there. Um, and I'm just curious what you make of their relationship and who his father was to him. Yeah. So I think, you know, our position is, is that the father was like the kind of the structure of the house. Um, and I can't speak to any of the kind of 
like we never we never interviewed anybody that talked about the abuse in the same way that you know we wanted to interview Jonathan Hernandez, but he respectfully declined in a very nice way and um, totally respect him for that. Um, That's his brother. Yeah, yeah, and um, but he does talk in the book about yeah, about that yep. quite a bit. Yeah, so I think I think we you know our position is that you know Dennis Hernandez was like the was this kind of structure of the house. And then when he tragically and, and, you know, un, unknowingly, you know, passed away from, you know, the routine hernia surgery that Aaron had kind of lost the structure. So, um, you know, that I think right there in and of itself, like kind of, you know, talks about their relationship and what he, what he was in that household without us actually being there. Well, and the craziest part, you know, spoiler alert, but we've already gone past the spoiler alert part, is that then his mother ends up getting together with his cousin's husband. Yeah. Like very shortly after, who he's very close to, the cousin. Yep. And apparently I read that they had been having an affair prior to um, Dennis's death. I don't know if that's true or not, but they do end up together very quickly after Dennis dies. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seemed like that really fucked him up. Yeah, yeah. No, I think... Again, like all we can do is go, all we can do is go off of what, you know, what people told us in an interview. And, you know, that's something that Tim Sansusi talked about um, in his interview, um, which, you know, is in the, is in the doc series. So, and that's his, is that his friend from high school? That's Dennis's Sansusi's father. Dennis, yeah, right. Yeah. Dennis. So, so talk about those two. That was very interesting too. I like the way that you produced it where you had each of them talking. You didn't really understand that they were together. Um, well, we actually, yeah, no, we actually, um, we didn't, we, we, um, interviewed them, uh, separately. Oh, and then together. Um, and then we brought them together. Got um, it. Got it. So just to, just to get different perspectives and then to have them, uh, interact and connect like together. Yeah. And were they, um, like, did those come in through the sports writer guys? Like how much of a, were they instrumental in kind of getting those interviews and getting them to be a part of it? Yeah, they, they, um. Dennis and Tim are great guys. We sat with them for a while in Vegas. That's where they live. Um, and they, you know, we really connected um, and just hearing about like their, their upbringing and, you know, what it was like for, for Dennis to have a father like Tim and he was very homophobic and, and now they kind of, you know, they've almost like have come together and made amends about it and are connecting on like this beautiful level, you know? Um, we just, we just, frankly, to get their interview, we reached out to them several times and we finally were able to interview them. Mm-hmm. And is that the first time that he's ever talked about his relationship with Aaron? Uh, no, I think he's, I don't know. I can't say for sure. I believe he was, you know, he, he was interviewed for other things. Oh, okay. Yeah. So going back to um, the father relationship, you know, it was interesting to me. I think you guys went into his college career um, in Florida and then obviously his, when he was drafted with the Patriots and it seemed like with Urban Meyer and with Robert Kraft and maybe Belichick that they were, he was trying to create these, um, you know, fatherly relationships, right? Like they, he kind of, I was very taken with, um, when Kraft was, they were waiting for him to testify and he kept cranking his neck back and he had this sort of panicked look on his face. It's like he, that approved, I don't know, I read it as like fatherly approval and that like he had let this guy down or I don't know, I don't know. Or maybe he knew what he had told him and he was nervous about that. I don't know. Yeah, I actually didn't, I didn't pick up on that. Um, but that's interesting that you say that. 
you know, all the things that you can, like you said, like read into or not read into, is this the kind of stuff like you were so immersed in it for so long? Would you, would it keep you up at night or are you just like focused on, I have to like make a story here and figure out like how to tell this cohesive story that's got all of these strands and themes? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, any project keeps anyone making the project up at night and <laughs> you, you, especially if you're dedicated to it and you want to do right by it. And, you know, I've, I've been dedicated to it since the beginning and trying to put together the best possible project for it that I can. Um, so, um, you know, that's, and, and I feel like we did that. My dream was to have a doc series at some point land on Netflix and that's what we accomplished. And I think the world wanted to know more about this story and that's what we put in, put in front of them. So you guys really do a great job digging into, you know, football culture and um, like you said, entitlement and just in general, like how much pressure, you know, athletes are put under. Um, I thought it was really interesting that Aaron said at one point, I think on a prison phone call about, you know, they banned that drug and they were still giving it to me and just, you know, everything in terms of um, really digging into that and, and thinking about it. And as someone who could care less about football, it was really interesting to really think about football culture that is such a huge part of our culture as a country. Mm. And I'm curious, like, what were the things that you wanted to bring across in the stock in terms of that theme? I would say it's less of a football thing and more of a sports thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, like that type of stuff is going on in every sport and down on the, on the college level, all the way up, all the way up to professional level. And I think it's, again, it's a business and people work in that business to be compensated for their work and people pay money to go and watch, you know, people play and, and do things. And it's just, uh, you know, a conversation that needs to be had and, you know, how are we, how, how are we looking at sports in America and, and how are we handling athletes that are injured and, and, you know, where do we draw the line about uh, putting somebody on the field, um, you know, that maybe shouldn't be on the field. And just in general, enabling them, like I thought it was really interesting when he started to get freaked out that, you know, he was going to get, you know, people are going to get come after him. He went to them and said, like, I got to get drafted. And they're like, no, you don't. We're going to just find another apartment for you. You know, I mean, they were quick to sweep. I mean, if there was really something going on, they should have been like, let's go to authorities together. Right. Yeah. But I don't know if we, I don't know. Like, again, we didn't get, we weren't able to penetrate that and why that decision was made to mm -hmm. give him the, the, uh, you know, the second home. So, it's hard for me to like make any sort of decisions on like w what the Patriots knew and didn't know. Like everyone tries to get me on that. It's like, Oh, the Patriots knew. So they're complete. It's like, I don't, we never talked to the Patriots and I have no idea if they were or not, you know? Well, it's super clear. Yeah. They didn't want to talk about yeah, yeah. anything. They had that amazing, you know, um, I don't know if it was real sports or whatever the, the interview with Gronk when he just got really pissed off and kind of stormed off cause he didn't want to talk. He kept like going yeah. in on him, like, and he's like, "I told you, I'm not going to talk about this." <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure. I mean, anybody in any corporation that, um, you know, there's something that like on the Hernandez level that happens, it's like, you know, you tell like, why would anybody, you know, talk about that openly? So, <laughs> right, yeah, no, no good can come from it, I guess. Yeah. So, in terms of putting the story together, um, 
how how did you make a decision in terms of you know you definitely I think you kind of use the court stuff as as a bit of the spine with the prison calls like how did you you had so many stories to tell it was kind of chronological but it also sort of bounced around like how did that change once it became a series at Netflix in terms of like how you were going to tell this story how did that differ maybe from how you originally put it together and how you wanted things to unravel or, you know, get seep out. Yeah. I think, um, there's a bunch of different ways to approach the story and it matter. It's just a matter of who's editing and how you're editing it and what makes the most sense. And I think it, de- it definitely changed from film to series. We, we frankly like started over and really, yeah. And we, um, you know, kind of played with the, the timeline and storyline and it just made it, um, even better than the film was. So it's, you know, did the store, I mean, I guess did the crux of the story change? Like, do you feel like the, the heart of the story was still the same? I felt like the messages were mostly still the same, but I think the way that the viewer is drawn through the story is different. Um, just because of the, the new interviews we had and all the phone calls and there was, we had more archival. We just had so much more, um, you know, when it went to series that it, when you have more tools to work with, you, you're able to do different things. So you said when you were filming the doc that, you know, obviously you had no idea he was going to kill himself. And, um, what, what was that like? What was that like to discover that in the middle of filming the court, you know, the, the trial and, you know, those horrible people, sorry, that like outed him on the radio show, like all of that, all those events happened kind of very quickly. What, what was it like for you to experience that? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, are you talking about when he, when he took his own life or you talking? Yeah. I mean like, so the trial happens, he gets acquitted, they go these, you know, they start all these tabloids and these radio shows are talking about him being gay. And then like two days later he kills himself in prison. Yeah. Um, I don't think I made the connection at that point that, that the tabloids had anything to do with his, you know, with him taking his own life. Um, I was more so just that morning waking up, just shocked by it and um, having just dedicated five or six of months of my life trying to, you know, tell this story and put the, put a project together. Um, you know, it was really shocking, I think, to everyone. So that's, you know, that's really what I was mostly, mostly concerned about. So there's kind of two theories that come out in the doc about that, about after he kills himself, you know, one is that it was kind of in direct relation because it happened two days after these people are sort of making fun of him and his sexuality on this radio show. And then the other thing that you guys explore is the idea that since the case was on appeal, that he could still get, if he killed himself, that it would be, it wouldn't be a close case so that his fiance and his daughter would get all his money. Cause he writes them a note saying like, you're rich. So I don't know what we're, I'm kind of torn on how I feel. What, well, what we, was your so, takeaway? So just to clarify, yeah. we only, we only put out there what was put out there. Like we're, it's not like we kind of, you know, manufactured that and right. put that in there. It's <laughs> like, course. that's, we, Those put, are the two we, things. we put the, the, the events out there like in the piece as they happen. So yeah. that again, and it gets back to your original question, like, you know, that's why people are so fascinated is because there's no, there's no one answer why, you know, why Aaron did certain things because there's so many factors that are at play. And I don't think it's, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not prepared to like make a decision on why certain things happen. But what I, what, 
I slash, you know, our filmmaking team decided to do was just put everything out there so that the viewer can make the decision. Yeah. And probably the biggest mystery of all is why he killed Odin Lloyd. And, you know, they were friends. And of course, there's a million different things people speculate about. Oh, he knew he was gay. He caught him in the act. I mean, you know, you see like all of these things, but we'll never know. Unless you know something you're not telling yeah, us. No, no, yeah, I mean, I don't think we will ever know. And I think, you know, it's it's such a convoluted story and it's there's there's nothing clear about it, but that's what draw that's what fascinates us. I think we I've done a lot of true crime stories that are close ended, clear, and it's and you know the motive, you know everything and and yes, they're interesting and um, you know, you feel for the the victims and their family members and you know, we remember them. But with this one, it's you can't do that. You can't know exactly why things happened and what the motive was. So one more thing I wanted to get to. Um, you interviewed Jose Baez, who was Casey Anthony's attorney. Um, he's pretty, you know, great lawyer, um, interesting personality. And he kind of like slammed the film after it came out or the docuseries mm -hmm. after it came out. And it was, I didn't really understand what, what happened there. Did you guys have a falling out with him or? No, I mean, we, we interviewed him and, you know, honestly, I don't, I haven't spoken to Baez since we interviewed him. And so I don't know exactly why, you know, he, why he's saying what he's saying and, and, you know, putting that out there. Um, you know, I do know that he actually produced his own two hour special uh, for oxygen um, with Shiana Jenkins interviewed. So maybe, you know, that's, that's something that came out, I think a, a year and a half or two years ago. So maybe he, I don't know. I, I have no idea why he was upset about it. Was so. he interviewed for your, for your piece before that? No. Oh, it was not. after. Yeah, oh, it was so after. Interesting. Yep. Huh. Interesting. So, so I guess the other thing I wanted to ask is, and this is just a really, you know, I don't know that you've, everyone's talked to you about this and maybe, there's no deeper answer, but I was really interested in the, in the opening graphics and what, like what it was, it's kind of like almost like a musical, like an old time musical. Yeah. I think, um, that's a, that's I the, figure that that's the out. genius of Angus Wall and his team. Yeah. Cause they also do the game of Thrones title sequence. They, they oh, do wow. a lot like they're kind of like, at least in my opinion, they're like the creators of like the title sequence and like, television, you know, in, in series, as opposed to like, we, we, we typically only see them in movie motion pictures, you know? Yeah. So that's really, I have to give them the credit for that concept and, and the, and the, the cue as well, the music cue, which everyone just kind of like yeah, mis that's the, mystified that, by it. Yeah. And it, it creates all these conversations. Like, why did, why was it like that? Was it this, was it that? And I think that's probably what the, the goal was of it is to, to just, you know, it's again, it plays into the storyline of this, of this whole, like this whole case and, and just, you know, how you, you can't really understand what's going on, you know? Right. But, but it's funny or ironic though, that you do call it killer inside the mind of Aaron Fernandez, because in a way we don't really understand the mind, you know, I mean, it's yeah, is I that intentional. Well, I think, um, you know, he, the double life is like a big, the double life is like also a big, a big kind of theme here. It's like, we felt like he was, he was living this double life on the surface. He was this, this football player. He was, you know, a good family man and stuff like that. And then, you know, at night, you know, he kind of just turned 
like he would just almost like become this other person. And that's when he got into like, you know, like doing bad things. Yeah. I mean, he, and I'm curious, let's talk a little bit about the sexuality part of it because it's, it's a hard story to tell from that point of view, right? Because it's not his story really. Um, it's all posthumous. Mm -hmm. So talk about those conversations around like how you were going to tell that story about his sexuality. Well, I think talking to Dennis Sansusi is a way in because Dennis had a relationship with, with Aaron. So he could tell us anecdotes about what it was like for them to be in a relationship growing up in two extremely, you know, homophobic like households. And then to also hear Dennis talk about it um, and how he, he wanted his kids to be a certain way. Um, you start to see the picture and then we brought in Ryan O'Callaghan, uh, who's, who was, um, you know, we figured, you know, he, he's, he is an op like the first openly gay, um, you know, first or, um, former NFL player and to hear his struggles and what he went through, then you can start to kind of see, well, if Aaron was either bisexual or homosexual growing up, then now we get a sense of what that's like being in the locker room and playing um, high school football and then playing college football and then playing professional football, you start to get to see, you know, what it could have been like. Yeah. He broke my heart when he said that, that one line about, you know, I was going to go play football and then kill myself. Like, uh, wow. Yeah. It was, it's Gosh, really sad. It's it really sad. So sad. And he, and you know, when I interviewed him, you can really see Ryan's a great guy and he's, he's, he struggled with a lot and he really was just, he kept pushing his body to play football so that, cause he knew he was going to, you know, kill himself after he couldn't play anymore. Cause then he would, he had no way of hiding his sexuality, you know? Right. Football so, was the beard. I think yes, he said yeah, that yeah. was such a good line. Yeah. It was really, it was heartbreaking to hear it. And you know, that made me think about Aaron and you know, all his tattoos and like kind of trying to, put out this persona like he was a thug when like he really didn't grow up that way that's not really what his background was you know he kind of had a good upbringing you know in middle class neighborhood I mean he, I think you know you could argue that that was trying to mask feelings or, or you know who knows yeah no I mean yeah who knows and I think seeing what Ryan went through and the 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 you know him putting all, on all the weight and him like like you know, he was doing whatever he could to keep the beard, yeah. you know, going, you know. Yeah. I mean, I can't say it really is that different now. It's not like, oh, well, years ago it used to be like that. I mean, you don't really see a lot of out NFL players. Yeah. No, you don't. You don't. So now that it's doing so well and people are still buzzing about it, what? how has your life changed? Other than doing a lot of <laughs> podcasts and <laughs> And, uh, a lot of interviews. And, and live interviews. And uh, it really hasn't changed that but much. But you know, you're not yeah. getting all the calls. Where's our Aaron Hernandez? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, we, I'm always like, that's my, you know, how I make a living is by finding things that I think are interesting and investigating them and putting them together. And of course, I have a lot of other projects in development. And my hope is, you know, that I can only, you know, get even close to what Hernandez was able to do. Um, you know, as far as the doc series goes, it's just, um, I'd never expected it to have this, you know, I wanted it to have this impact, but I never expected it to actually happen. 
So we only have, you know, a few minutes left, but, and so it's sort of late in the game to ask this, but I'm just curious, like how you got here. Like, I know you grew up in New Jersey and you, you went mm. to the George school and then like after, did you go to college? Yeah. So I went to, <laughs> yeah. So I went to Gettysburg college Oh uh, yeah. and late in my college career, even though I thought I wanted to be a, a psychologist and I thought I wanted oh, to really? be an English teacher, I started just like filming things and like I loved editing and filming something and putting it out there. So after college, uh, I was applying to internships in New York and I couldn't get anything, but I finally landed like an unpaid internship and at this company called Redline Films and they're, they're no longer around, but um, I was living with my grandma in Yardley, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And I was taking the train every day, two hours each Ooh, way that's a long for an unpaid internship. <laughs> right. And I did that for like six months and then finally got my first job there and worked my way up, you know, uh, the ranks. So, and then you started Blackfin after that? No, I, so, okay. so while I was at Redline Films, I learned how to film and edit and write treatments. And, and basically I, I learned how to like create projects. And towards the end of my time at Redline Films, I created a show. And one of my friends, best friends from George School, happened to be in the mailroom at WME. And actually, I think he was an assistant at that point. And I put it in fr- I put the pitch in front of him, and he was able to get it into WME packaging meeting. How and, cool is that? Yeah, and then we and then we took that out. And what show was that? It was it was <laughs> it was a show called it was. It was originally called Eels of Fortune. It was an eel fishing show in <laughs> Maine. Awesome. But that, then, I but mean, then, that name alone. But then Wheel, Wheel of Fortune didn't like that. And so then it became Cold River Cash, which is just kind of a blah name. And it never really, it aired a couple episodes and then was pulled. Was it on that uh, It was on Animal Planet. Animal Planet. Um, so, so yeah, I, I spent a bunch of years just replicating that where I'd go out, I'd find something, I'd go out and shoot the sizzle myself I'd edit it myself and then I put it into in front of WME and they'd give it to a production company and then we'd go out and shop it. Got it. And then I eventually just got, I just wanted to start making my own stuff. Right. Like I didn't want to partner it up anymore. Yep. So that's when I started Blackfin and I just started it out of a small WeWork. You, bo- you bootstrapped I it. I bootstrapped it. I don't have rich parents or <laughs> no one in the business. No one helped me right. get in. And it was really just, WeWork really helped me because- it's month to month and you can cancel at any point. So it's an entrepreneur's dream. It's like, you look at your bank account and it's like, <laughs> can I, do it? I have three months, <laughs> so I'll, do, I'll sign up for three months. And nice. from there, I just brick by brick started selling projects and, you know, um, it, it was tough to get something off the ground, but eventually we did. And then, you know, got another thing and then another thing and then another thing. And then that's how Blackfin became Blackfin. And so that was based in New York. Yeah. So is so then you got tapped for this job to run E1. How did that all happen? Yeah. So so um, Blackfin was then acquired by E1, and what um, when was that was last year? That was last September. Okay. And then part of part of that was that I was be, going to become the president of E1 Nonscripted, and that all came to be because my new boss Tara Long, um, we were actually on a panel a couple of years ago at like a real screen. And it was kind of like a tell your origin story panel. You know, 10 executives tell their 10 minutes to tell their story. And I heard her story, um, how she built E1 from, you know, this non-scripted division from nothing. She kind of heard my story. And I think we were just kind of drawn to the entrepreneurial nature of it. 
So then years later, we were able to get a deal done to, you know, bring me in to basically um, take over the president role, which is what she was running before. And then now she's president of global and I report to her. Blackfin so, still. I was going to ask yeah, that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Blackfin. Still in New York. Still in New York. Who's running it? Uh, <laughs> I have like four folks that, you know, I trust with my life that, um, you know, head of finance, head of production, head of development and a head of, of uh, post-production. And they're, they basically run the, the entire company. And the way I say it is like, nothing's changed except I just moved to LA. Like that's, <laughs> there's still tons of shows happening there and, and we're still producing a lot out of New York and, um, you know, but when you bring in projects now, are you bringing them in through Blackfin or E1? Like, how does that it, work? It really depends on where they come from. Like, okay. like everybody that has projects, they know what type of brand they want to associate with the project with. So sometimes projects will come in through Blackfin and I, I like those projects and I help Blackfin incubate them. And then in other cases, projects are coming through E1 and then I help them, you know, put those projects together as well. Got it. So when did you actually move here? I moved here uh, December 6th. Oh, yeah. You're fresh off the boat. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So what do you think so far? Uh, I love it. I think LA is a great place. There's a lot going on here, a lot of new people, um, a lot of, a lot more kind of, a lot of industry happening, like in what we do. Um, and I think there's just, uh, in New York, it's like everyone's in these buildings with you know, you have to, there's security and it's very hard to like see people from the industry and in LA, like, it's all like you do. that's how I <laughs> reconnected with Elliot. Like a couple of we weeks ago, me and my wife were like getting brunch on a Sunday and Elliot walks in with a son and we end up sitting next to each other. That's so f I didn't yeah. even realize, like I just randomly yeah. reached out to him of all people. Like I didn't yeah, really yeah. know you had this kinship. Yeah, that's yeah. so great. Yep. So yeah. Well, he's in the Valley too. Yeah, exactly. That's so funny. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm glad you did this series. I really appreciate the artistry. And well, I appreciate, thank you for your interest. And, um, I had a blast talking to you on any time. So thanks Gina. Yeah. Thank you.